The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're continuing in our series on Romans, uh, looking at the law. You know, we've been in this series for several months now, and um, we're going to keep working our way through. And Paul's argument so far has been, Romans 1 through 3, everyone's a sinner. Everyone needs the gospel. And in Romans 3, he talks about the gospel that is revealed from faith. In Romans 4, he tells us that it's always worked this way. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was justified by faith, not his works. And in chapter 5, he talks about Adam. That we're not under Adam anymore and guilty because of his sin, but we're in Christ. We're in the new Adam who succeeded where the old one failed. And after Paul makes all these comments about sin, about salvation, about justification, he then turns in chapter 6 and 7 to defend his views. Chapter 6, he defends against some objections about grace. If grace is so good, doesn't that invite us to sin more? And Paul says, of course not. You've died to sin. And later on he says, are we not to sin? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul says again, by no means. You are servants of God. So in chapter 6, he defends grace against the objections. In chapter 7, he starts to defend the law because he said some really surprising things about the law so far. In chapter 5, he said that the law came in to increase the trespass. So somehow, the presence of the law made sin worse or more or brought even more sin that That seems like the law is a bad thing. In chapter 6, he says we're not under law, but under grace. So there's this option here, this opposition even, between law and grace. And we know that grace is good, so law must be bad, right? In chapter 7, just last week, we heard that we have died to the law and we are released from the law. The week before, we heard that we've died to sin and we are released from sin. So is the law sin? Is the law evil? At the very least, is the law bad? Let's look at Romans 7, 7 through 13 to see how Paul answers this question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the truth that it reveals to us about you, about your law, about sin, and about us. Father, as we look this morning at the relationship between sin and the law, 
I pray that you would help us to understand. Help us to use the law rightly as we fight against sin in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So right off the bat, Paul takes away the question. You know, verse 7, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. This is how he always answers his questions, and it has the force today of, seriously? Are you kidding me? Of course not. The law is not sin. And we say, okay, Paul, that's a really strong reaction. Uh, I can tell that that question upset you, but I still don't understand. The law seems to be complicit in all this bad stuff. If the law isn't sin, then, then can you explain to me how the law and sin are related? And that's our driving question this morning. Not so much a main point as a question that we're looking at. How are the law and sin related? We'll see three different aspects of this this morning. First, the law identifies sin. And second, sin abuses the law. And finally, the law exposes sin. So first, the law identifies sin. It identifies what sin is. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Before we dive too deep into this passage, we need to, to take a pause and ask, what does Paul mean when he says law? He uses this word a lot. We're going to talk about it for the rest of this morning. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Is it the law in Rome, where these people lived? Is it natural law? Is it moral law? Is it some kind of made-up law? Is it the law of the Pharisees? What law is Paul talking about? There's no question that the Old Testament can be confusing. I mean, we just preached through Exodus, right? And there are parts in there that on the surface, when we read them, we really just don't know what to do with. So if my oxen has a habit of goring other oxen, what am I supposed to do? We don't know how to deal with that passage normally because none of us have oxen or even could draw a very good picture of one. So what do we do with all this Old Testament law and books, especially Genesis through Deuteronomy? Well, it's helpful if we distinguish between the three different kinds of law that are all present in the Old Testament. First, there's the civil law, the political law. This is the law that's only applicable to Israel as God's chosen people living in a theocracy under his direct rule. It includes things like the role of the king, the jobs of the scribes, particular punishments for particular sins. So if you dig a ditch on your property and your neighbor's donkey falls into it, how do you make it right? If you keep digging ditches and your neighbor's donkey or children keeps falling into it, how do you make it right and how are you going to get punished if you refuse to build a fence around your ditch. These particular kinds of laws no longer apply to us simply because we're not in theocratic Israel. But at the same time, we don't ignore these laws. The principles behind them endure. We don't deal with oxen and donkeys, but principles of restitution, of restoring what has been lost, of justice, of fairness, still apply. So that's the first kind of law, the civil or political law. The second kind is the ceremonial law or the worship law. And we heard a lot about this in Exodus. It includes things like how to become clean after touching blood, what to do with lepers, how the priest should dress, what the, temp- what the tabernacle should look like, what the wall should be made of for the tabernacle, how to offer sacrifices, how often to offer sacrifices. 
sacrifices. These laws had to do with the cleanliness of the people of God. These laws, too, no longer apply because Christ has come in and fulfilled them. He is the perfect eternal priest. He is the perfect once and for all sacrifice. So these laws have not been abolished or nullified or canceled out, but they've been fulfilled. What they pointed to has come. So these laws no longer apply to us, but at the same time, we don't ignore them. The principles behind them endure. The weight of the ceremonial law pointed to one fact, that God is holy. And he demands that we be pure when we come into his presence. We have that purity now through Christ, but the fact of the matter is God is still holy. The ceremonial law is not applied to us, but it still endures. Just like the civil law has restitution and justice behind it, the the ceremonial law has God's holiness behind it. God is still holy, and he still demands that we be pure when we come before him. We find that purity in Christ, but God's holiness is no different just because we are cleansed by him. So the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then finally the moral law. It's sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And these laws are binding on all people at all times, and they never pass away because these laws are rooted in the character of God. They tell us what he loves and what he hates. These laws are the principles behind that civil and ceremonial law that don't change. This moral law is what Paul has in view when he talks about and says the law or the commandment. Paul uses those words basically to mean the same thing in this passage. He has in view the moral law. I mean, he quotes from the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. That's a quote straight from the Ten Commandments. He's viewing the law that's applicable to all of us, all the time, everywhere. And because that moral law reveals the character of God, what he loves, what he hates, by nature it identifies sin. That law doesn't create sin, but it identifies it. Lying is still lying whether or not someone has ever told you, hey, you're not supposed to lie. But when the law comes, it identifies lying as a sin. Picture it like this. You're asleep in bed, and around 2 o'clock, it's dark, You wake up all of a sudden and you really, really, really need to go to the kitchen and get a snack. Some of you might have been thinking a different room, but in this illustration, we're going to the kitchen for a snack, all right? It's dark in your house, and so maybe it's a long way to the fridge. There's furniture in the way. If you have pets, who knows where they're sleeping? If you have kids, who knows where they're sleeping or what Legos they've left in your way? So what do you do? You turn on a light. You get out your cell phone and use the flashlight. The light exposes and identifies those hazards in your way, but it'd be ridiculous to say, if I don't turn on a light, there aren't going to be any hazards. No, the light doesn't create the obstacles. It reveals them. It identifies them. The Word of God is the light that identifies sin. So don't let anything other than the Word of God define sin. Culture wants to define sin. It wants to take things out of the list of things that are sin. Extramarital sex, not that big a deal these days. Same-sex marriage, you know, we'll figure out a way to make it work. Gluttony, I mean, not with food, but with everything else, that, that's fine. You know, gluttony of possessions, uh, gluttony of social media, 
my personal favorite, gluttony of Netflix. Um, th these things are, are kind of treated lightly by our culture. But they also add things in. I mean, intolerance is the chief sin these days. Not being green and driving a gas guzzler, man, that's going to get you hated in people's eyes. You don't eat organic, paleo food? What are you doing? The culture tries to define morality, tries to define sin, but it doesn't get to. Only the word of God does. We try and define sin as well, don't we? I mean, all the time I'm trying to define it for myself. Yeah, that was a white lie, but I really didn't want to hurt someone's feelings. Or, yeah, that wasn't really true. I didn't actually do that thing, but I'm going to do it right away, so you know, might as well just, just skip the fight. We try and define morality for ourselves. We try and define morality for others. You don't listen to Christian radio? You voted Democrat? You let your kids celebrate Halloween? You don't like the Chronicles of Narnia? You didn't do an Operation Christmas Child Box this year? Are you even a Christian? These are all good things. These are all things we should pursue, but we don't get to define sin and holiness for one another. Only the Word of God does. Don't let anything, culture or yourself, define what sin is other than the Word of God. So the law helps us by identifying sin, but unfortunately, it also identifies us as sinners. Look at verse 9. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Paul's saying here that it was through the law that he came to a realization that he was actually a sinner. And we know all about Paul from Acts, how he's persecuting the church, and that was a good thing where he was, how he's pursuing all this righteousness, he's obeying all the rules. Paul would say, sin? What sin? I mean, look at everything I'm doing. Look at how well I obey the law. I'm fine. But when the commandment came, when he had a true understanding of the law of God and what it requires, he says, sin came alive. He saw that it was actually alive in his heart and I died. His confidence in his holiness, his righteous, his own efforts to keep the law crumble. All of that, Paul says, is filthy rags. Again, the law didn't make Paul into a sinner. It illuminated the fact that he already was. When you ask people what their favorite book of the Bible is, what's at the top of the list? Second Chronicles, right? I mean... Who doesn't go to Second Chronicles when they're just hungering and thirsting for the Word of God? I'd encourage you to read it, um, because we find a great example of this, oh my goodness, I really am a sinner, on a, on a national level in the book of Second Chronicles. Um, after David and Solomon, the kingdom splits. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, the northern kingdom gets wiped out by Assyria. They get taken away. They're in captivity. And the southern kingdom is kind of like... Okay, they're gone. That's fine. We still have Jerusalem. We still have the temple. We still have, like, the real priesthood. So it's all right that they're gone. And they think that they're safe, even though Assyria is still strong, even though Babylon is still strong and rising in power even, even though Egypt is still strong. They say, we're God's people. We're fine. But they don't have the law. They don't remember the law. When Josiah becomes king, uh, he looks around and says, this temple that Solomon built is really great, 
but that was generations ago. Um, let, let's have a cleaning and restoration project. You know, sweep out some of the cobwebs, update some of the painting, you know, the, the styles a little bit pre-dynasty. So we're, we're going to update this a little bit. And he sends people to go do the work. They go do the work, come back. His secretary tells him, hey, all the work's been done. Um, we should pay these people. Josiah's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's pay people for the work that they do. So again, he sends his secretary out and says, go find some money to pay these people. Listen to Second Chronicles 34, verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, so they, they find some money, and they, they're bringing it out. Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. So the way this verse is, it's like he discovered it. He's like, hey, here's this book of the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, that tells like how our kingdom's supposed to be run. Um, Josiah, this might be important. Hilkiah answered and said to the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. He gave the book to the secretary, who brought it to the king and further reported to the king, we've paid everybody, they've emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord, given it to the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He commanded others, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord, to do according to all that is written in this book. The southern kingdom was corrupt with pagan worship, with forgetfulness about who God is and what he had done, they were sinful. But when the word of God came and it was read before the king, on a national level, you see repentance. You see sorrow and grief over sin because the law doesn't just identify what sin is. It identifies us as sinners. Have you had this happen to you? Have you seen your own sinfulness through the word of God? Don't ignore the word of God when it points out your sin. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Who likes to be told that you're wrong in this area or you're broken or you're messed up in this area? Ignorance might be bliss, but it's dangerous. Don't avoid the word of God because it points out sin in your life. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Ignorance is bliss, but it's dangerous. If you're not a believer today, if you've never let the word of God identify you as a sinner, you are in a dangerous place because you are sick and Christ is the only medicine and you'll never turn to him for forgiveness unless you see your need. But if you are a believer today and you're not regularly letting the word of God identify sin in your life, you're in a dangerous place. Don't ignore the word. Don't avoid the word. But let the word of God identify your sin that you might bring it to the cross. You might grow to look more and more like Christ. The word of God identifies our sin and identifies us as sinners. Let it. Ignorance is bliss, but it's dangerous. This is all really positive, actually. I mean, I'm saying it's uncomfortable that, that ignorance is bliss, but it's better to know anyway. But 
these are really positive things. The law actually tells us true things about ourselves, and it actually tells us what God loves. Those are really good things about the law, but unfortunately, sin doesn't rest quiet. Sin doesn't just sit around and let the law identify it. Sin abuses the law. And this is our second point today. Sin abuses the law. First, it abuses it subtly. Look at verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin takes the law, which identifies it, and uses it to produce sin in us. We talked about this last week, that the essence of our sin is rebellion. Rebellion and rejection of God's rule over every aspect of our lives. So when the law comes and says, hey, that's sin, we say, you're not the boss of me. I'm going to do it anyway. We see this in our children. We see this in other people. We're teaching Sophie what no means. Um, It's going all right. She's only 10 months, so like we don't think she'll get it overnight. Um, But she knows more than we think she does because if she's reaching for an electrical outlet and we say, Sophie, no, and make her take her hand away, she'll look at us. And it's frightening to see that rebellion in a 10-month-old. I mean, she's adorable and I love her to death. She is a sinner and she is rebellious and... I'm really glad that she can't walk yet because her rebellion would be a lot more efficient if she could walk. We recognize this in our children, but we should also recognize it in ourselves. Listen to this excerpt from St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, It's a, a great book. I'm not going to define sin for you as having not read the Confessions, but you should read the Confessions. Um... This is him talking about a recognition of his own sinfulness. Is that me? What am I doing? You don't know? Okay, all right. Um, He's talking about theft and, and how everybody knows that it's wrong to steal. Even thieves get upset when people steal from them. But he says, yet I had a desire to commit robbery. And I did so, driven to it neither by hunger nor by poverty, but through a hatred for well doing and a strong impulse to sin. I stole something which I already had in sufficient measure and of much better quality. I did not desire to enjoy what I stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. He gets even more particular. There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. So it didn't look good, and he knew it wasn't going to taste good. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, I among them, went to rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat, but to dump out to the pigs. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou pitied even in that bottomless pit. Let me now confess what I was seeking there while I was being overly sinful, having no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error, not that for which I erred, but the error itself, a depraved soul falling away from security in thee to destruction in itself. 
Augustine says it was foul, and I loved it. I love my own undoing. This is the subtlety of sin. Capitalizing on our natural rebellion so that the law actually excites sin in us. Brothers and sisters, keep watch. Sin is subtle. It tries to hide from us, so be on guard. Are you trying to teach your kids about the importance of honesty? Beware of deceitfulness in yourself. Are you frustrated at your spouse's impatience toward you? Beware of your own impatience. This passage really challenges the way that we think about sin because too often we think of sin just as acts, just as things we do. But Paul says that sin produced covetousness, or in other words, sin produced sin. So there must be more going on than just sin as an act. It's a disposition. It's a force. And it acts subtly, but it also acts strategically. Look at verses 10 and 11. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul uses this phrase, seizing an opportunity. It's military language. It talks about an army taking a stronghold or taking a strategic position to be closer to the enemy so that they can defend and attack more effectively. Because sin is strategic. It's seizing an opportunity. Why? So that it can deceive you. Why? So that it can kill you. Sin is aware and alert and ready to capitalize on any opportunity, and it will do so because it is our enemy. I don't see sin like that too often. I see sin like a gnat buzzing around my head. Yes, it's annoying. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, it's a nuisance. But it's not that big a deal. I mean, if I get the chance to squash it, I'm going to. But if I can't, it's just a gnat. It'll fly away eventually on its own. Sin is not a gnat. It's a lion. It's hunting us, seeking to destroy us, hiding itself from us until our guard is down and it can strike. Sin wants our death. So oppose it. Fight against it. Fight against it with everything that you have. Give no opportunity to sin, to the flesh, to the devil. Fight it with prayer. When you see it in your life, Pray that God would help you put it to death. Fight it with watchfulness. When you don't see sin, don't let your guard down. It's hiding. It's a lion. It doesn't want you to see it until it's too late. Fight it with community. Invite others into your lives, into your heart, that can help you identify and guard against sin, that can point out your blind spots and who you can point out theirs. Sin is your enemy, subtly and strategically abusing the law to destroy us. Let us fight it together. So Paul's shown us these two things about the relationship between sin and the law. First, sin, first the law identifies sin. It points it out. But then sin turns and abuses the law. It's not the law's fault that sin takes advantage of it, which is why Paul can say in verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But all of that leads to another question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? 
I mean, if sin was going to be used by the law all along, why give it in the first place? Did this good thing become an instrument of death? And Paul responds, as he always does, of course not. Are you kidding me? No way. The law did not bring death. And he goes on to point out the third aspect of the relationship between sin and the law. that The law exposes sin. First, it exposes the ugliness of sin. Listen to the rest of verse 13. Did the law bring death? No, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The word there is literally hyperbole. That, the, that, that sin might be shown to be super sinful or super and over-the-top sinful. Sin is ugly. And the law unmasks this ugliness, showing its ability to corrupt, to twist, to pervert, to take that which is good and use it for evil purposes. You can't watch something so good and so beautiful as the law be abused and mishandled and warped and twisted, and not respond with horror towards the thing that causes that abuse. You can't look at something you love, something pure, something good, being broken, and not be horrified at the thing doing the breaking. The law exposes sin's ugliness, and it makes us hate it. This helps us repent, because all too often, my repentance only goes to circumstances. I see the effects of my sin and those around me, and I'm sorry because it's making my life uncomfortable. My repentance itself is selfish. But if we see the ugliness of sin, we're able to truly repent because we can say, even if there are no consequences, I hate this sin. It disgusts me. Even if the consequences would be for my good, for my benefit, I can say, no, I hate this sin. It's disgusting. The law exposes the ugliness of sin. But it also exposes our helplessness against sin. I mean, look at the weight of this whole passage. Sin is crafty. Sin is strategic and subtle. And it's trying to kill us. It's powerful enough to abuse something as good as the law. The law identifies sin, but has no power to stop the abuse that sin gives. The law identifies us as sinners but gives no power to eradicate sin from our lives. So one of the things that the law does is exposes our helplessness against sin. John Bunyan illustrates this in The Pilgrim's Progress, which again, another great Christian classic that you should all read. The holidays are coming up, you know, you're spending a lot of time with family, and if you're the kind of person like me that needs to escape for an hour every once in a while because there's just too much family, um, you can tell them, hey, my pastor said I have to read the Pilgrim's Progress this Christmas. So take advantage of that this holiday season. Anyhow, John Bunyan illustrates our helplessness against sin. Christian, the main character who's journeying towards the holy city, comes to the house of the interpreter. The interpreter welcomes him in and takes Christian by the hand and leads him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it was never swept. After surveying the room a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. When the man began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly around that Christian almost choked. Christian said, what does this mean? The interpreter interpreted. This parlor 
is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. The man who tried to sweep at first is the law. As soon as he began to sweep, the dust flew around so much that the room could not be cleaned by him. You almost choked. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleaning the heart from sin, only revives, puts strength into, and increases it in the soul. Even as the law reveals and forbids sin, it gives no power to subdue. This is what we've seen in this passage. The law just stirs up the dust in our heart and helps us say, hey, it's really dusty in here, but can't actually clean it. So what are we to do? Bunyan goes on. The interpreter then asked the lady that stood by, bring some water, sprinkle the room. When she had done this, the room was swept and cleaned with pleasure. Christian said, what does this mean? The interpreter interpreted. The lady that brought water and sprinkled the room is the gospel. After she sprinkled the room with water, it was cleaned with pleasure. This is to show you that when the gospel comes with its sweet and precious influences, even as you saw the lady subdue the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so sin is vanquished and subdued, the soul made clean through the faith of it, and as a result, fit for the king of glory to inhabit. The law exposes our helplessness against sin that we might run to the only true help in our fight against sin, Jesus Christ. The law did not excite sin in him. The law did not aggravate him to sinfulness. The law did not capitalize on his rebellion, for he had none. He perfectly obeyed the law and gives us his righteousness. Don't look to the law to cleanse you. It's like bringing a broom to clean up a dusty room. All you're going to do is stir it up. Instead, let the law drive you to Christ, who takes away not just the penalty of sin, but the power of it. Can't you see the power of God in this? Sin always tries to make a mess of things. It caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. It caused Haman to plot the destruction of the Jewish people. And it caused men to crucify the Lord of glory. But God will not be thwarted by the purposes of sin. Joseph was sold into captivity, yes, but he rose in power and prominence and preserved his people. Joseph told his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Haman, who plots the destruction of the Jews, is killed on the very gallows that he himself built to exterminate the Jewish people. And his primary targets, Esther and Mordecai, rise to power and protect the people. Christ's death on the cross looked like sin's greatest success, but was actually the defeat of sin and death itself. Look at the power of God in taking sin's evil purposes, sin's abuses of the law, and using it to drive us to himself. You are helpless against sin. But brothers and sisters, God is not. Run to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the law. God, it is holy and righteous, and good, and shows us our great need, our great sinfulness, Father, our helplessness against sin. Father, as we see what the law is capable of, its subtlety, 
it's, it's, it's thwarting of every good thing. Father, help us to be disgusted by our sin. And Father, seeing that, help us to run to you. Help us to run to Christ, the only redeemer, the only help for us. Father, we run to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.